Welcome to Good Christophian Talks. I'm Levi. And I'm Chris. And I'm Brian. Thank you for joining us this week. On this podcast, we select one talk a week to help us get the Bible in our daily newsfeed. We post a new episode at the start of each week with a short intro beforehand to kind of set the stage for the talk you're about to listen to. And now, let's talk more about this week's talk. talk is an exhortation by Brother Dan Knowles, given at the Tea Tree Gully Ecclesia uh, earlier this year. Uh, The title is uh, God Knows. Uh, Very much enjoyed this exhortation. uh, found it very instructive um, and and uplifting um, uh, and inspiring, I guess, recognizing that our Heavenly Father does have empathy um, in any time that we have felt alone or overwhelmed um, or confused about our, you know, What's happened in our lives, God knows, uh, and um, doesn't press us beyond what we can bear. Uh, this was a suggestion. Very thankful to the sister that sent this in. Um, please do send us um, any talks you hear that are um, uh, that are beneficial, and we will uh, likely share them. Thank you again. So here is God Knows by Dan Knowles. Well, thank you, Mark, and thanks for those opening thoughts as well, and the, the psalm that you... Uh, quoted to us earlier, which is very relevant to our theme this morning. And good morning, brothers and sisters. It's lovely to be with you all again here to share a morning together where we can reflect on the word of our God, what he's given us and what he's offered to us in our Lord. Well, there are times in life, aren't there, brothers and sisters, when we face trials or challenges or maybe just situations that have come upon us, whether brought upon us by our own mistakes and poor choices, or just by the circumstances of life. And there are times when we can feel quite alone, in the sense that no one understands what we face. Sometimes we say that to ourselves, don't we? If only someone else understood We can feel, perhaps, at times that everything is against us or everyone is against us, whether that's reality or just our perception, our frame of mind. Sometimes we feel we have these situations in our life that either no one else understands or no one else knows, or even if they did know, they wouldn't understand. But the reassurance for us, brothers and sisters, is that your experience is not alone. People in scripture felt this too and poured out their hearts. They poured out their emotions, sometimes despair, sometimes frustration, even anger at their circumstances that they found themselves facing. Yet the hope is that they worked through this. They came to a realisation, a realisation that became a calming influence in their minds even changed their perspective. And this realisation, I think, can be summed up in those two words, which is our theme this morning. God knows. God knows. And that might seem overly simplistic. I mean, that's something we teach our children, isn't it? God knows everything that you do. Be careful what you say. Be careful what you do. Be careful where you go. God knows. 
But it doesn't hurt us to reflect on that and to revisit that, does it, as adults, as grown-ups, if in fact we have grown up. And to think about whether we remember that we also, like our children, are in the presence of God. He knows what we're thinking. And that's the challenge for us, I think, as disciples, as we, we look at life's issues, big issues or small issues, the small interactions we have within our family and our friends through to the bigger issues that we might work through in ecclesial life. And what I find, brothers and sisters, is that we, you know, we can easily give or we can easily hear talks on the concept of God in our lives and all these lovely ideas And yet there can be a huge disconnect sometimes in our lives between that theory, between that thought and that ideal that we are all very happy to talk about and how we actually deal with the situations that we come across in life. And I think subconsciously, we may never think this thought, but subconsciously we can act as though, well, that doesn't apply to this particular situation or this aspect of my life. No, sorry, the spirit of Christ can't be applied here. I just have to deal with it in my own way. I don't think any of us would ever consciously think or say that necessarily, but our actions, our words, our thoughts even, might belie that. We might be striving for an outcome we see is right, a cause we believe is the best. But if we stopped and examined the way we get there, the way we get there does matter as well. Do we think about how God looks at the way we travel, not just where we're going? The thoughts going through our heads at times, our personal responses to what he's brought in our lives. Does he see in us a consciousness of his being, of his presence? I say this because this is something I've struggled with, so I assume that there are others that also struggle with this the possible disconnect between what we profess and how we actually act and respond. What are some examples in scripture, just to name a few quickly? People who experienced injustice, were misunderstood, discredited, how it impacted them, how they responded. Well, I'm sure you could some examples would start to run through your heads, but some that spring to mind straight away. Think of Joseph. Misunderstood. You know, considered by his brothers as egotistical, self centered, when he was in fact there to seek his brethren's welfare but had to suffer in silence for all those years without objection without complaining, without lashing out knowing that it was God's will Moses you take too much upon yourself Moses the people said to him as Moses struggled there through the desert trying to care for them all like a father to a million people Job Job just accepted You've sinned, Job. In fact, Job, the consequences you have are less than you deserve, Job. When Job knew that he hadn't done any particular thing wrong, that he was, in general, a righteous man, he struggled with that, clearly, and we get to see all the thoughts going through his head as he struggled through that concept. Couldn't even understand why God was putting him in that situation. But he had to learn to trust, didn't he? To trust that God had it in hand and would judge fairly in the end. And throughout his turmoil and his struggles, he had these little moments of clarity, these truths which came through in his words. 
There's one I particularly like in, in Job chapter 23, and we might just turn there for a moment. If you keep a marker in the psalm, we'll come back there later. But Job 23 are some favourite words of mine in, in the struggle of Job's life. Starting from verse, verse 8 of Job chapter 9, Job chapter 23, sorry. As Job reflects on the struggles in his life, he says, Behold, I go forward, but he, that is God, is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand, where does he work? And on the right, he hideth himself on the right hand. I cannot see him. But, he says in verse 10, one thing is for sure, he knoweth the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot hath held his steps. His way have I kept and have not declined. And although I think Job is still struggling with the concept of how God is treating him, you might say, and the, the situation, the struggles he's putting him through, he accepts. He cannot re- reject this one fact that God knows. He knows the way I take. He sees beyond what I see. And he can bring me forth as gold at the end. We have, of course, then people like Nehemiah, who laboured amongst the nation, brought about reforms, rebuilt the city, and then went away for a few years and came back and found all his reforms uprooted. What was the purpose? What had he even achieved in his whole life? the end of that book as he found people turning his back on the things he'd set up and yet it wasn't a wasted life why because god knew and god saw and so his classic phrase to god is remember me O my god for good jeremiah imagine a man with a mission to prophesy doom and destruction on your own city and all his people saw him him as was a doomsayer, a traitor to the cause of Israel, when he was completely the opposite. Imagine being in that situation. And of course we have David, who we're going to consider today. Imagine a man who we know was spiritual at heart, but imagine being written off, being labelled in the mind of the nation as an adulterer and a murderer. Yes, God had forgiven him, as Nathan said. But, but who else knew that in the nation except for Nathan, the prophet? As far as the rest of the nation was concerned, David was still labelled with those names. No longer a spiritual man, certainly in the eyes of people like Ahithophel and his followers. David was like a dog to them, one cursed by God. And yet David knew that his own relationship was God, with God was restored. But he couldn't change what people think thought of him, could he? And he didn't try to. He just trusted in God. And it's only that we have the full record and are able to look back in hindsight that we know that he was a changed and a spiritual man. Of course, we have our Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate example. Yet in his day, in the moment, the most misunderstood and unappreciated man in the world. His enemies throwing slur on his birth and his credentials, his motives, twisting his teaching. And his friends and followers, not malicious, but completely failing to understand what he was going through, to comprehend what he had to do and his real purpose in life. 
And so we're going to come back, of course, to our Lord Jesus Christ when we conclude. But what I'd like to do now is just to take a small sample from David's life in, in the psalm that uh, Brother Mark read for us, Psalm 142. Because this is just one, I think, of many psalms that, where David reflects on his situation in God's eyes. There are many psalms and many deep reflections of David. Uh, Brother Mark read another one, relevant one this morning as well, where he reflected on the way God knew all his thoughts. But we're just going to take this example, which is as, as it describes a masculine of David, a prayer when he was in the cave, Psalm 142. Before we get into the psalm itself, notice that a masculine actually means a contemplative song. So that means that David has taken a moment to pause and to contemplate his situation. But not simply to contemplate it from a human point of view, but to reflect on it with God in mind, with God's view on his life, you might say. He stands back for a moment and looks at his life through God's eyes. In our busy world and our busy life, when we're often dealing with problems by doing and acting, often on our own so-called wisdom, meditation is almost a a lost art, isn't it? It's something that's not so much done, or or if it's spoken of in this world's context, it's it's much more of a a mind-emptying thing than a God-centred thing. And we have this challenge, don't we? Especially when we're in the thick of fast or fast-moving or significant events. Do we force ourselves to pause and to reflect deeply on our situation from God's perspective? Considering for, considering for a moment that it's just you and God, leaving for a moment other parties out of the equation, shedding those layers those of protection, those barriers that we put around ourselves and our motives, the barriers we might have between us and other people, that we hide somewhat our inner selves, and stopping to just open that shell, to lay our hearts open to God. It's probably a struggle with our Western culture as well that we don't do this as well as perhaps we could and and people in times past did. Our culture where it's a stiff upper lip, you you try not to show emotion, you keep things bottled up. But we can't be like that with our God brothers and sisters, even if we might be with each other. What's the situation David's in here? Well, it says a prayer when he was in the cave. Now, clearly there's two cave incidents. There's, there's the cave of Adullam, where David first gathered with his um, 400 men, and there's the cave of En Gedi. But the cave of Adullam seems to lend itself to this situation better. If that's the case, it's that incident which is described in, in 1 Samuel 22, and it, it might be helpful just to turn back, back there for a moment, just to remind ourselves of that context. First of Samuel chapter 22. So just for the context on this, if you look back just before chapter 22, you'll see this is, this is the time when David has, has first fled from Saul. He's first gone to Ahimelech the priest, obtained some items then, um, gone on, not felt safe, and... In verse 10 of chapter 21, arose and fled that day for fear of Saul and gone to Achish, the king of Gath. And so you can get a sense of David's 
mindset at the moment, and it's not stable. He feels initially that there is no safety for him in the land of Israel itself amongst the nation. No one's going to harbour him. And he was right in the sense that everyone was, was afraid of Saul and, and his, his fear was justified in the next chapter when Doeg and, and Saul come through and wipe out that whole city of priests, families and children and all, just because they helped David. And so feeling so isolated, he thinks, well, oh, what's my next option? Gath, Achish. Clearly not a wise choice, but this shows the frame of mind and the, the state that David was in. And so, you know, I was saying he jumped out of the frying pan and into the fire. And we know how things went for him in Gath. And he ends up, to escape from Achish, in verse 13, a dribbling mess on the ground, doesn't he? Absolutely humiliated, pretending to be a madman just so that he can escape from this situation. And we know from other Psalms that he was, at this point, pouring out prayers to God as he did so. And indeed, it wasn't his own ploy of being a madman that saved him, but God's providence. And so now he he returns back to this cave, you know, Dullam, a dejected man. He's, he's, he's gone everywhere. He's tried all human help. The nation of Israel's let him down. Gentiles, no help either. Human resources, human protection is exhausted. And hence, we have the thoughts and the prayer that he pours out in this psalm. It's a realisation that there was no human help that he could rely on. As you'll see in verse 4, for example, if you flick back to the psalm, Psalm 142. There was, I looked on my right hand, but there was no man that would know me. My refuge failed me, whether I tried it in Israel or tried it in Gath. No man cared for my soul. You get this emphasis, don't you? No man, no man. But I cried unto thee, O Yahweh. And so that's setting. Uh, that's the setting for these words. David, now in this cave about to cry out to God. It's interesting that the word cave itself means a cavern or a dark place. And that's fitting for David's state of mind, isn't it, at the moment? He is in a dark place in his life. And so this psalm seems to have a couple of sections in that it changes tense partway through. You'll notice in in the first few verses, he's talking in the past tense. And he's talking about God in in the third person as, as, as him. So I cried, past tense, unto Yahweh, in verse verse 2, I show before him my trouble. So this psalm must have been written after David had his cry and his, his, his pouring out of emotion to God in the cave. And the interesting thing is that he's now, at some later point, taken the time to stop and, and to look back on that moment in time and reflect, this is what happened and this is what I did, God. I, I stopped in that cave and, and I cried to you. Well, it's as though he's speaking actually to another audience. Perhaps it's even his, his 400 followers because he says it's, it's to him. He's not speaking to God in those first two verses. He's speaking to some third-party audience, whether it's his men or the readers of this psalm. That's what happened. I, I was in this moment and I, I poured out my complaint to God. And the next section he changes uh, tense again. He starts talking about you or thee, to God. Verse 5, I cried unto thee, second person, O Yahweh. So he's now changed the address of his psalm rather than addressing these audience and these readers. He's now addressing God and speaking with God about what happened in that scenario. 
It just shows the value of reflection, isn't it? That he didn't just go through the moment and move on. He paused and thought back on it and then wrote this psalm. So the first section is a reflection which begins with quite some distress. You can get the sense of it in verse 1. I cried unto Yahweh with my voice. With my voice unto Yahweh did I make my supplication. There's a, there's a, a parallelism. There's a, a structure in the Hebrew, isn't there, which is repeating for emphasis. My voice. And the only thing that changes in both those sentences, some translations put it, with my voice I cried unto Yahweh, with my voice did I make supplication. It's just the last part of the phrase that changes. I cried, I made supplication. For both, I used my voice. And there's a, there's a lesson in that itself, brothers and sisters. When we're, when we're alone and we're praying to God, you know, we often probably just pray in our heads, as we say, without speaking out loud. And there's no one else there to pray for. We're not doing a prayer for a group or for a family. But it doesn't hurt, actually, as David does, to, to say his prayer out loud, to make his cry out loud. Now, I've done this a couple of times, and you'll find, if, 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 you, if you haven't tried this before, it does make you think a bit more about your words, a bit more deeply, and to make a more realistic connection between you and God as though you are speaking to a real person, not just having some random thoughts float through your head. So David says, no, I had to voice this. And it's, it's also those times when you can't help but cry out to God. It's almost a first, the, the word cry means to shriek. It reminds us of those, those groanings that can't be uttered in Romans 8, where someone, I can't at first, says David, put words to it. So first I just cried. I made this noise like you know, a child that needs its father or mother. I just had to tell you, God, that I was in trouble. And then, gradually, I could actually articulate that into words. He says in verse 2 that I poured out my complaints before him. Now, the complaint is not a negative word as we have it in, in English. It, it's probably better um, rendered my troubled thoughts. The New English translation says, I poured out my lament before him. I tell him about my troubles. So he wasn't complaining against God in that ne- sense necessarily. It was an openness. David's obviously feeling deep in the issue, in the moment. I mean, just imagine, after all the success that he enjoyed after the defeat of Goliath, moving up promotions through the ranks of Saul's courts to leading the army, being a general, and then a very fast descent into the depths where he was no longer a national hero, but a fugitive. People either afraid to associate with him or snubbing him because of his status as a runaway servant. No one stood by him. And yes, you might say, people joined him in the cave. 400 people. But were these people coming to support David? What sort of people were they? Everyone in distress, everyone in debt, everyone in trouble. They weren't They were there to get support from David. And it's interesting that God does that to us at times when we think, I need help, God, from someone else. Well, God sends someone else to us for us to help. And sometimes that's the best thing for us, to help us out of our own misery, our own focus on our own needs. As one commentator notes, trouble and lack of human sympathy or help have done their best work on David since they have driven him to God. 
If he wasn't brought to that point of having no human help, he wouldn't have poured out his thoughts in this way. When it says in verse 3, my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path. In the way wherein I have walked, have they privily laid a snare for me. Bullinger says of that word, overwhelmed, that in the Hebrew it means was darkened. My spirit was darkened within me. And you can imagine it's as though the dark storm clouds of his situation have come over him. The sky has darkened for David. In the ESV he says, when my spirit faints within me, you know my way. Thou knewest my path, or you know my way. And that's our theme this morning, isn't it? So, so what is that actually saying? It's, it's a rather peculiar phrase if you look at it. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then God knew what my path was. Well, that seems a bit strange. Didn't God know what his path was, regardless of David's feelings? Well, there's two possible explanations for this I can see. That one, David reflects on the fact that even though he was overwhelmed and couldn't see his path forward, that God could. The other explanation, which I think fits better, is that it wasn't until David was overwhelmed and saw that there was no human way out that he realised, only God knows my path. And we have to be brought to that point sometimes, don't we? To, brought to, to exhaust human resources until we realise that it's only God that knows our path forward. He says in verse 4, I looked on my right hand and beheld, and there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. Well, the Amplified says, no man cares for my life or my welfare, whether it's his physical life or his spiritual life. No one wanted to know him. If you know David, or if you, associate, if you even appear to associate with him, you could have Saul on your back with his army and Doeg. So either they were afraid or they just didn't have time for David or people like Nabal who just rejected him and scorned him outright. Either way, no man cared for my soul. And so his response, seeing no human help in verse 5, is, I cried unto thee, O Yahweh. I said, thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Attend unto my cry for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. He made this statement of confidence in God. Thou art my refuge in the land of the living. Let's let's work through that phrase and see what it contains. His refuge, so he's the one he turns to for protection. As though he has for he has no physical fortress, does he? He doesn't have a castle with walls that he can take around to defend him from Saul. God is like, you might say, his, his mobile protection. His portion. He had no prospects of inheritance, did he? I mean, what, what land or what possession is a, is a fugitive man who's been disgraced and kicked out of the court of the king? What sort of portion is he going to get in the land? And, and let alone actually possessing some land, as the other, other Israelites would, actually have stability there, actually have a place that he could call home and safely attend. Just the basics of life. David had no place to call home at this point. And so what God offered him was a portion. 
and inheritance, and it's in the land of the living. In other words, if you, if you turn that around the other way, David's saying, well, there's nothing else in life, in this life, the land of the living. If it wasn't for God, there would be nothing worth living for. Well, that's actually the reality for all of our lives, isn't it? But how often do we think that? How often do we remember that? We can easily find other things to occupy ourselves with or to live for, we might say. But when we come to David's point and realise, actually, when everything else fails, there is nothing else but God to live for. So David says, in verse 7, he makes this appeal, Bring my soul out of the prison, that I may praise thy name. The righteous shall compass me about, for thou shalt deal bountifully with me with me. So what is David's appeal? People have clearly been unjust to him. Saul, his followers, others who should have been faithful and stood up to him but stood up to Saul but deserted David. What does he want? Does he want justification for himself? Does he want vindication for someone to stand up and say, look, this is all unfair, Saul's wrong. David was right. David was doing the right thing. Listen, everyone. Is that what he asks for? No. He simply says, bring my soul out of the prison. Release me from the prison that, that we're all in, the prison to sin and to death. You see, David steps back and realises there are bigger issues at play here. It's so easy for us, when we have a trouble or a problem that's come on us in life, to either blame something or something else in life as the cause of that problem? Have we ever reflected on the fact that something that perhaps frustrates us the most or gets us, affects us negatively can't be an accident? It's probably been purposefully allowed by God. It's that person or that thing or whatever it is that upsets us or is causing us trouble. If we turn that around and think, well, God has purposefully allowed that And actually, probably the real root cause for it is not a particular individual group or whatever it might be, but human nature and the sin that is I'm guilty of as well as everyone else. It starts to change our perspective a bit, bit, doesn't it? And we're not so ready to kick against the pricks. If it may, well, we God administering them. There is none of those selfish, self-defensive sentiments here. Rather, David just appeals for release so that he can walk free in the land and enjoy all the privileges other did. No, that's not the release he's looking for. Not just so that he can have physical freedom to walk about without being chased by a spear. That I may praise thy name. Bring my soul out of the prison that I may praise thy name. And you might think of another psalm where David says, in, and I'll summarise in, in today's language, please don't let me die, God, because if I die, I can't praise you. In the soul, in the, in the grave, who shall give thee praise? And that was David's genuine view. It wasn't just, oh, save me, because I'd really like to have a nice life living in this land as king, unpersecuted by Saul. No. David thinks broader-minded than that. Now, he says, the righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. So David's got this vision of other people joining him, not just to support him and pat him on the back and say, yes, David, you're great, but to join him in praising God for what God had achieved in David's life, that they'll see that you've dealt bountifully. So 
God would deal generously with him. And we know that because we have the hindsight of his life. He didn't know what was coming after this point. He didn't know that he would become king and all things would go well for a while. And so he didn't take an approach of anger, requesting destruction, but rather he said that what will impress people when they look at my story in my life is God's positive work with me. The work that I have submitted to, that's what turns the tables. And that's what people will see is David's positive response to God. That's what turned the tables in his life. Not because he was so good with the sword and with fighting that he got up and won the issue, defeated the people who were arguing his cause, made his point, and everyone agreed, yes, David, you're right. No. It was because he was probably in their eyes weak, humbled himself and submitted himself to what God had in store. Compare his words in Psalm 31. Just turn back there for a moment. In Psalm 31, he reflects again at a different but probably similar point in his life on his need for God facing when facing other challenges. It says in verse 1 of Psalm 31, In thee, O Yahweh, do I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in my righteousness. And that's, that's how he starts his, his thoughts. Now see what he has to deal with in verse 13. Come down to verse 13. For I have heard the slander of many. Fear was on every side while they took counsel together against me. They devised to take away my life. I mean, I'm, probably, I'm sure all of us have had personal attacks at times. But have we really had that much as David has? But I trusted in thee, O Yahweh. I said, thou art my God. My times are in my control. No, my times are in thy hand. Deliver me from the hand of mine enemies and from them that persecute me. Make thy face to shine upon thy servant. Save me for thy mercy's sake. Can you get the sense of David when, when he's got slander, fear being raised against him, people counselling, like doing really hard work and, and putting their brains together as to how they can take him down? And what's his response? Well, I'm going to build a counter plan. I'm going to sabotage what they're doing. I'm going to infiltrate them. No. All I just said was, thou art my God, and that's all that matters. I'll leave it in your hands, God. And if... And he didn't presume that he was right either. He would accept the possibility that he was wrong. And he would say, whatever is right in your eyes, God, that's what should be done. So just consider that example with Saul, right? And consider for a moment if it was us. Was Saul in the wrong? Absolutely. Firstly, he'd attempt murder of David, murder of his son Jonathan, and shortly after this, he's going to mass murder a, a whole city of priests. Was David on right grounds to object and to, to, to round up support for him, for his cause against Saul amongst the nation, to even lead an, upri- lead an uprising? I mean, he had people singing, David has slain his, his, his ten thousands and Saul only his thousands. Do you not think David could have gained popular support if he did a bit of campaigning? For sure he could have. Did he do this? Not for a moment. 
You could have said he was justified. He had divine appointment. He'd already been anointed to be king. I mean, what more can you want? What more endorsement do you want? Justification to stand up to Saul. If it's bad for the nation, it's bad for them spiritually. Saul's just taking them downhill. The right thing for me to do is to step in, take control. It's God's will. No. Did David go around just... Just then bad-mouthing Saul to people. Well, look, you know, you can see Saul wasn't got much control. I think things are pretty bad. Look, he's doing a pretty bad job. Um, look, he's not good for the nation. Turn to me. No. In fact, he makes that point to Saul in the cave in Gedi when the first thing he says to him is, Saul, why do you listen to men who say, David seeks your hurt? Or um, David's trying to pull you down and drag you down. I'm not running rumours about you. I'm not sabotaging you behind your back. Here I am. I'm, I'm honest with you. If I wanted to damage you, I would have done it here and now. David was straightforward of integrity. What you see is what you get. Why did he endure this all? Did David see it as Saul's fault and pour all his troubles on Saul? No. He doesn't have, have you don't find Psalms ranting against Saul saying, it's all Saul's fault, he's so bad. He accepted that God brought this trouble and this trial on him. It wasn't about the individual attacking him. They were really just an example of human nature. And in this case, they were God's chosen instrument of trial. We know that his response of trust to his men, he wouldn't, he tells them, I won't turn my hand against God's anointed. God has the situation in control. God puts Saul in the role and God will take him away when he's ready for it, if that's what he chooses. David did not, in, in Jesus' words, kick against the pricks. And think about it too. Would David have become the merciful, the understanding king that he was, that really benefited the nation spiritually, if he did not go through this situation? For years too. It wasn't just a quick trial and then it's all over. So that's all very well, but how do we make sense of David's situation in, in our day today? How is that relevant to us? Well, let's take the test. Let's question ourselves. How do we respond when issues arise, whether it's in our individual life, our family life, or our ecclesia? Because actually, brothers and sisters, wherever there are humans, there will be issues. Well, the first challenge for us is to see these things as not necessarily done to us or done to someone by someone else or something else but most likely as allowed by God for our development but I can hear you saying Daniel the negative things that are happening around me can't possibly be part of God's work with me or this ecclesia they're so bad how can any good come of them all I can see is negative I say this because I've thought this same thought at certain points in my life And I've learned the falseness of that statement later on, but perhaps not for some years later. Look at scripture, brothers and sisters. The good, the bad, the ugly is there in the lives of people that we know God worked with. And while God was by no means the author of evil, the author of wickedness and sin, he did not prevent negative things happening on occasions. I mean, why on earth would he allow the David and Bathsheba situation to occur? the murder of Uriah, an innocent man, a bystander, to occur, and then the the ongoing family upheavals that followed David and his his sons in their life, the uprisings, the revolts, the assassinations, 
How can the purpose of God work through a mess like that? Yet it did. And this event was part of the journey that led to Messiah. It's almost incomprehensible to us, but God can work through that. Maybe you could even say God chooses to work through that, bizarre as that may seem. So let's not limit God. Let's not consider that, and let's consider that anything that is of significance in our lives that is really impacting us may well be his hand. Because it taught David and it taught those around him some critical lessons. And let that be our first response when issues come. And then perhaps it won't be such a reactive, self-defensive, even angry response when we consider the patient submission that we see in David. But secondly, as we spoke about earlier, let's pause and deeply reflect on the response that's brewing us. You know, it's a useful skill to practice to stand back and look at yourself from the corner of the room, to picture how you are reacting to a situation, take yourself out of the moment if you like. It helps us to generate a response that's born of the spirit of Christ rather than one that's born of that instant, natural, selfish reaction which we all have. It gives the chance, the mind of Christ a chance, a moment to work. And so then how, with that in mind, how do we react to others based, around us based on what's happened to us? So the first thing is how do we react within ourselves when things happen? The second is how do we react to others around us? How do they, do they see us as that person that's arcing up resisting what's happening to around us, trying to drive our own agenda. If our trial is that we feel we've been wronged, whether by our family, by individuals, by our ecclesia, how do we react? Do we go about garnering support for our cause, telling people how terrible things are for us? Because it goes with that saying, doesn't it, that as, as humans, our view and our cause is always the right one, isn't it? How, how could it be anything else? We have to just for a moment abandon that thought. What did David do when he was, you might say, wrongfully deposed as king? When he was kicked out of the nation, kicked out of the ecclesia? His response was this in 2 Samuel 15 as as he trudged up that hill on the other side of Kidron and told them to take the ark back home. And he said, If I shall find favour in the eyes of Yahweh, he will bring me again. And show me both it and his habitation. But on the other hand, he said, If he say thus, I have no delight in thee, behold, here am I, let him do to me as seemeth good to him. And it's good for us, brothers and sisters, to have more of that in our lives, of that thought. David didn't rip, turn around and rip into Absalom, to Ahithophel, to the nation, to the ecclesia. He saw it as God's hand and he submitted to it. And what about us if we're not in an issue, brothers and sisters, but it's happening around us? If people come to us and share their issues, or whatever it may be, how should we react? How should we respond? Should we put fuel on the fire? Should we all take up, take up our arms and join one particular side or another? What does that do? As we all know, it just adds fuel to the fire, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? Creates the divisions like Paul saw in the Corinthian ecclesia. No, 
That wasn't the approach of David. It wasn't the approach of Paul. It wasn't the approach of our Lord. Do you notice that whenever our Lord was tried to be pulled into arguments or sides by the different factions within Judaism, he never took one side or the other. He took a higher ground. He took a broader-minded approach. He stepped back further and said, but what is God really trying to achieve here? What's the purpose of God that we're trying to achieve? No, it's not about giving tribute to Caesar or not giving tribute to Caesar. It's about rendering to God what is God's, showing the qualities of Christ. And let's think then, as individuals, how we react to a situation and the impacts of that on our ecclesia, the spirit of our ecclesia, and the future of our ecclesia. And let our responses, brothers and sisters, be the level, thoughtful mind of Christ. Pause and examine ourselves and ask, what is our real motivation? Is it to fight our cause or is it to see God's will done? And let us not be like those around David in his life who wanted to have their voice heard, to make their opinion on the situation. Do this, do that, David. Kill Saul. Do this other thing. Take control. Let's not be one of those. But when we're on the bystanders of an issue like David's, let's not have the sense of pride that says, my opinion on the situation needs to be heard. This is my view and it's, it's important. Let's have some trust that God is also at work, not just us, if we really do believe in providence. At a certain point, brothers and sisters, the particular issue we work through itself becomes irrelevant. And what God actually cares about is how we're all reacting to it. Are we fighting for our own cause, for our own views, or is our focus on feeding his sheep? We need to think deeply, brothers and sisters, to search our hearts, to consider how God views our hearts. I'd like you to turn to this quote in 1 John chapter 3. It's a very telling and very searching quote. First of John chapter 3, and let's start from verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So just don't, don't give platitudes. Don't just say cliches. Be real about it. For, he says, if our, if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. So consider our own hearts. Think about the fact that God knows our hearts. And if we can step back and see an issue then he definitely can see issues, can't he? Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, once we've openly and honestly assessed it, then we have confidence towards God. We have that openness, don't we? Not, not confidence that we are right in ourselves, but openness. We have nothing to hide before him, do we? So let's conclude now by looking at Christ, our, the ultimate example in Hebrews chapter 5.
to the Christ. Was he unjustly treated? Absolutely. Was he self-defensive? Never. Was he God-conscious? Always. Was he proud and resistant to others? Far from it. That we read in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. Who, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things that he suffered. Isn't that incredible? A man who was perfect, we might say, for our views, did no wrong, and yet had the most wrong done to him as done to any human that ever walked the earth. And how did he react? We offered up prayers and supplications. He cried out like David did, strong crying and tears, so that he could save himself? No, that so that he could express his trust and his submission to him that was able to save him and was heard not because he was confident in his own righteousness, in that he feared. And even though he was a son, even because he was the son of God, he too, brothers and sisters, had to learn obedience by the things which he suffered. Well, brothers and sisters, if Jesus had to learn obedience by the things that he suffered, why would we complain about the things that we suffer if it's to learn obedience to God? He did not object, and he had every grounds for objecting, but submitted to himself to him that worketh righteousness. And so, brothers and sisters, may God bless us all as we endeavour to be like his son, to humble ourselves to follow the path which our author set. That is the only way. And may God help us as we endeavour to open our hearts to him, to place our trust in him, secure in the understanding that whatever we go through in life, whatever challenge we face, God knows. Thank you for listening to the Good Christadelphian Talks podcast. We hope this talk helped you in your walk. If you would like to hear more, please subscribe for new episodes and leave a review in Apple Podcast or whichever service you are using to help more people find the show when they search for it. If you enjoyed this particular talk, please share it with someone who you think might enjoy it as well. For show notes on the talk you just listened to, visit our show page at anchor.fm gct or check the show notes section of your podcast player. Please share your thoughts on the talk from this week on our Facebook or Instagram pages, where we are at Good Christadelphian Talks, on Twitter, where we are at GCT underscore podcast, or leave a comment on our YouTube channel where these talks are posted as well. If you know of a great talk, we want to know about it too. Send a suggestion to our email at goodchristadelphiantalks at gmail.com or message us on any of our social media accounts. Thank you for listening. God bless and talk to you next week.